Hello and welcome to the Medjilis Podcast, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Panier, host of the Medjilis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. Uzbek President Shevkat Mirziyoyev has many times encouraged journalists to report on shortcomings and corruption in the government and has even promised to, quote, stand behind them, unquote, while they do the reporting. The reality is different. There are still taboo topics, particularly when reporting about corrupt practices of certain state officials. Uzbek authorities quickly reined in traditional media when reporting hit areas that were uncomfortable for the government, but non-traditional media, bloggers and vloggers, remained for a short time beyond the state's attention. That has changed now also, and bloggers in particular are receiving some of the harshest punishments for crossing the invisible line between what is and is not permissible to report about. On this Medjilis podcast, we look at the situation with media, both, both traditional and non-traditional, in Uzbekistan. To discuss all this, I am joined by Umida Niazaba, director at the Germany-based Uzbek Forum for Human Rights, and Steve Sperdlov, a rights lawyer who has spent many years focusing on Central Asia and is currently an associate professor of practice of human rights at the University of Southern California. Thank you both for joining me. And Steve, uh, I'd, I'd like to start with you. There's been some developments in, in terms of bloggers, some good, some bad. Can you kind of fill us in on what's happening? Well, mostly bad. And, you know, I guess you could say there, there are some, some small silver linings. There's been a number of really troubling prosecutions of bloggers and imprisonment of bloggers over the past several years. And the pace seems to be picking up. Uh, we've seen the blogger Abdul Qadir Muminov sentenced to seven years and three months in prison uh, back in August. And then more recently, the blogger Olim John Haidarov, a very popular voice in Fergana, uh, being given a lengthy prison sentence. And this is on top of this trend that um, maybe began a little bit earlier, but began, or at least most notably, with the imprisonment of Atobek Satori, another blogger um, who got a very stiff, I think, I believe, six and a half year sentence. Now, with Atabek Satori, we did see a development that I think it's not a coincidence that this seemed to coincide with Human Rights Day in Uzbekistan, December 10th, well, not in the world. And he was not released, even though the Working Group on Arbitrary Detention at the United Nations has clearly called his uh, sentence unlawful and called for his immediate release. But he was transferred to, in Uzbekistan, what's called an open prison colony or a colony settlement. This is a, a, a less strict prison regime where you're able to leave the prison during the day for work and your life is a little bit easier. But make no mistake, it's still imprisonment and it still contradicts the calls of the international community. And then there's another development in the field of religious freedom and blogging there was one very notable release, which was the blogger Fozil Khoja, Arif Khojaev, um, who blogged about religious issues in addition to others. And there were calls coming for his release, most notably from the U.S. Commission for International Religious Freedom and other human rights organizations, I believe also Umidas. And so th there's been a lot of activity at least, but, but the overall trends, including the legislative trends in Uzbekistan, for some time have been extremely worrying when it comes to freedom of expression. So th that's a little bit of the update. Okay, thank you. Um, Umida, can you talk a little bit about bloggers too? I know that your organization um, released a, a detailed report several months ago about this. Did, did they kind of escape notice from the government at first when, when Mirziyoyev was saying, go ahead and report on this. It's important that we know what, what's not happening that needs to happen. Did, did he 
forget about the bloggers and and now the government's finally realizing that actually uh there's a lot of problems with the reporting they're doing right uh, so we published the report in june this year the president's broken promises puts journalists and uzbek bloggers at risk so over two years ago the situation with uh, bloggers began began to noticeably uh, deteriorate, and uh, sadly, there are no signs the situation uh, will improve soon. And uh, as a subscriber to many popular and not so popular Telegram channels run by Uzbek bloggers, I would like to note uh, peculiarity of the Uzbek blogosphere. Uh, so bloggers in Uzbekistan, especially those living in the regions, are perceived and can be considered as civil society activists because they are blogging about issues of uh, social uh, importance, uh, whether it's uh, energy prices or shortages, uh, corruption of local officials, uh, workers who don't uh, receive uh, their wages. And the bloggers uh, I'm familiar with have similar to you know human rights activists like earlier when the internet was not so developed in Uzbekistan we called such people like citizen reporter or human rights activists and now these uh, bloggers have their Telegram or YouTube channels with uh, tens of thousands of subscribers and now their voices. Um, louder than the voices of people in their communities who are not uh, being heard. And uh, people who, who turn to these uh, bloggers and ask them to report about their, uh, about their problems, so they also see bloggers as defenders of their rights. And these bloggers have very different background, often with uh, no knowledge of journalism or journalistic standards, but they fulfill this very important role that normally uh, the media would fulfill in democratic societies. So they are watchdogs for the actions of the authorities. And I also wanted to, as uh, the case of uh, Otabek Satari, uh, who was recently transferred to the uh, open prison, it is, uh, yeah, it is uh, uh, remarkable that um, he was sentenced to such a long term because, uh, like uh, Olim John Haidarov, he was accused of extortion on a large scale, and uh, he allegedly extorted two apartments from the Hakim of Termes. And the same Hakim, who was in November last year, he was uh, he was sent to prison himself for corruption. And uh, the Supreme Court finally ruled that these apartments, uh, which had uh, been confiscated um, previously, should be returned to Otabek's family, but his sentence was left uh, unchanged. So the charges against him were very dubious from the beginning, and the verdict was disproportionately harsh, and he's still in jail, even if he was transferred to the open prison. So uh, Satari was actually correct in his reporting, uh, and, and he was sentenced, and they didn't change the sentence, even though it was later uncovered that the officials really were corrupt. Oh, yes, absolutely. So the same... Same mayor of Termes, who was sent to the, I think, nine years in prison for embezzlement and corruption, he was uh, he witnessed at, at the uh, trial of uh, Otabek, like uh, telling that Otabek extorted the money from him. 
and the mayor was sent to prison. The Supreme Court returned the flat to Otabek's fam- family, but surprisingly, this harsh, like six and a half years in prison charge was not uh, changed. And uh, what uh, this uh, what is telling about this is the political order to silence the uh, critical blogger. Can I just chime in for a second, Bruce? Yeah, absolutely. Please. Just wanted to second something that Amita was saying, which I think is really profound for us to just, just pause and, and consider for a moment, which is these are the human rights activists of today's era, although, of course, we also have a, a, a category of uh, other human rights defenders in the country. But it's so striking to me, and I'm sure to Amita even more so, since she was in this community when, when in, uh, based in Uzbekistan, that the extortion and the bribery charges that we see being leveled against Haidarov, you know, against Satori, these same charges, these were the charges that after the Andijan massacre were rolled out again and again and again against the human rights defenders all over the country, like Azam Farmonov uh, and others, you know, from Jizak uh, to Tashkent to the Valley, you had this very typical pattern. And unfortunately, it, it seems in the past two years, as Amita was saying, um, this string of charges, which are really, I think, lazy charges that um, in this close, these closed trials, for example, uh, I believe Muminov's trial was closed. It's it, The bar is so low, it's so easy for the prosecution to get away with, you know, get away with murder. And there's so little we understand about how the investigations unfold, unfold in these cases. There was another case that uh, lesser light has been shed on it, but uh, very disturbing, where uh, Horshid Daliev, the chief editor of Human.Uz, and another two journalists that work with him were uh, also imprisoned on corruption, ostensibly for bribery and running a telegram channel where they were uh, alleged to be blackmailing people in exchange for um, positive coverage. But you know those investigations after they're arrested, they're they're remarkably closed, and there's no transparency. We don't quite know. But we have reason to believe that there could be ill treatment or torture. And then we get, as Umida was saying, really disproportionately long sentences, six years, six and a half years, seven years, eight years. And all of this really leads to the conclusion that there's something deeply wrong going on here. And, and again, I just wanted to pause and, and at the beginning of the program and say that this looks awfully similar to the darkest years, like 2006 um, and seven and eight. Uh, after Andijan, when we saw in 2005 included, where we saw this kind of string of muffling, muzzling the messenger. And yeah, that's, you know, go ahead, Omida. Yes, thanks. Uh, I want to add on extortion charges. Um, you know what? Unlike journalists uh, who can be influenced or censored, right, or can be uh, like fired, uh, the advantage, uh, the bloggers have is their independence and uh, this is both their strength but also weakness so the weakness is that they don't have an editorial office behind them they don't have a regular salary and they have no team to help to research the issues they are working on and uh, even up until April, I think 2021, bloggers uh, were at least able to earn something from advertising on YouTube. But uh, as I know uh, now, monetization function on YouTube uh, is not working in Uzbekistan. And 
what has developed in the Uzbek blogosphere is the practice of accepting a fee from people in exchange for reporting on their problems. And I'm, I mean, I'm not saying this is a kind of some kind of crime. Of course not. Uh, but uh, it could be problematic because it poses a, or a conflict of interest, uh, kind of uh, at the same. But at the same time, it's often the only means the bloggers have of earning a living. And uh, as we see, uh, so we have seen several cases where the authorities have been able to frame this exchange of kind of services and goods as fraud or corruption, so resulting in the arrest of the most critical and popular Uzbek bloggers. So, and uh, Olim John Haidarov's case, like he was sent, again, so his uh, eight years uh, prison uh, term, it is because of this large-scale extortion. And uh, Olim John is known for, known for criticizing uh, the local authorities, the, the mayor of uh, Kakan, and previously had been fined for publications, including for covering gas shortage problems. Uh, last winter, we reported about his uh, case. So um, we can discuss ethical issues, whether a blogger can kind of simultaneously criticize officials and also charge them for uh, positive coverage of their activities. But such a, again, such a harsh sentence of eight years imprisonment, I think, speaks volumes about the political background of this case. And yeah, mm. because this was not a violent crime, and uh, he claimed he returned the money, he had uh, received this payment for advertising the market. I, I think um, Umida just hit on a very important aspect of this, Bruce, which is that the category of blogger is somehow we're in this period where right now there's so much activity around this, so many arrests. I think the international community, uh, to some extent, or the diplomatic community is struggling a bit to respond to the Uzbek argument, the Uzbek government arguments. And we can see recently the agency for mass information and communications, uh, put out a statement in response to a request from voice of America about, uh, the, the conviction, um, the eight year sentence, I guess, for Haidarov which was so tough and, and disproportionately long. And they basically said, well, the law is the same for everyone. You know, we, you expect us to uh, go easy on this group of people. They're, they're ordinary citizens. The law is the law. Sort of, you know, we're putting our foot down response. And sometimes it's hard to respond to that argument. As Amita said, that it's a weakness that the bloggers are accused of accepting money in return for activities, which can be construed as bribery. But I think that also leads to this very key concern, which is that it would be very possible for the authorities to enforce this area of uh, of the law through civil suits, through fines, and more importantly, through education, training, support. And that's in fact what many other bloggers are still, still even now, courageous enough to speak out in response to these convictions, and they're calling for there to be you know, some better approach to this. But what is, I think what we shouldn't take at face value is the response from the government that it's necessary to arrest someone and put them in pretrial detention for months before trial for a nonviolent crime um, or for the allegation of a nonviolent crime. So I think that's where we need to ho uh, hone in and really focus the advocacy efforts is in making sure that bloggers and, and really the, the context of chilling freedom of speech in Uzbekistan is taken into account and there are other methods used rather than 
arrest and, and taking custody of, of someone for this kind of nonviolent action? Um, well, let me ask either one of you. Do uh, they have a laws about what you know what exactly um, bloggers are subject to in Tajikistan, for instance? Um, you have to pay tax on, on any money that you're making from from your YouTube channel or, or something like that. Is that true in Uzbekistan? Do you know? I know that many bloggers they have uh, they register their small LLCs like MCJ, and they do pay taxes. Like I know, like some. Even my, my friends who are doing like video blogging and they accept money from people who uh, apply to them and uh, they pay taxes. But again, you know, this uh, when we are talking about the uh, these public activists uh, and human rights activists, this is like this can be easily used against them. So that's why I was always, um, I, I think that it's very important for international community, for uh, funds, uh, different foundations to support this kind of public activism, to, su- to support Uzbek bloggers as they support human rights uh, groups. Okay, thanks. So there's there's still kind of some gray area as to whether bloggers are, are a business or a media or, or what, but... In any case, Steve, you know, I want to get back to this one point of the government seems to be trying to set an example of these people, right? You mentioned that the the punishment uh, seems incredibly harsh for this. I mean, we've seen reports coming out of Uzbekistan for violent crimes where people are only sentenced to three or four years. But these bloggers, uh, you know, six, seven, eight years in prison, you think the government, now that they found out that the potential bloggers have for uncovering bad corruption, things like that in, in the state, that they're kind of going down the same road. You'd mentioned on Dijon, they're going down the same road they used with media years ago of, of harsh punishment to bring people into self-censorship. Yeah. I, you know, I think you, you, you made a connection right now that is, is really interesting and important. And of course, it's absolutely shameful. And uh, I think especially angering to the to the, the the feminists and the activists that have been working on domestic violence legislation you know pointing our attention to how these light sentences for really violent offenders perpetrators of abuse uh, shamelessly short right and, and 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 not strict or harsh enough and then that's that's contrasted with this phenomenon which you pointed out and as you were speaking i was thinking about how these convictions in in some ways are the cousins or the relatives of the same types of extremism and or terrorism convictions that we've seen for years against individuals uh, accused of being extremists simply for practicing their religious beliefs, absent any evidence or any credible allegations of an involvement in violence or an incitement even to violence. So, I mean, in some ways, this is the core problem with governance and with with not just politics, but with the way the government operates in Uzbekistan, which is that it absolutely not only censors, but punishes uh, thoughts, uh, alternative ideologies, criticism very broadly construed. And so this shouldn't surprise us because many of the reforms that the human rights community has been calling for since President Mizoriev took office in 2016 have been left unfulfilled when it comes to these core issues, both in the realm of religious freedom extremism, calls for overthrowing the constitutional order, for example, and then in this area of the media sphere, you know, and I think it's it's really important at this point in the conversation to uh, recall what President Mujoyev has said, because I mean, he's really personally 
staked his reputation on this segment, this category of civil society. He said, and I think you 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 had an excerpt from this before, Bruce, but I'll just say a little bit in a little bit greater detail. In 2021, I believe, during a visit to Fergana, he was speaking with journalists, and he says, "You are my comrades in arms. I count on your help. I see you as a force that fairly tells about our achievements and our shortcomings to our people. I want to ask you one thing: Do not be lazy in your striving for answers. Don't be afraid to deliver information fairly. The president." is behind you. Those days are over. We will not deviate from this path. Justice, justice, justice. Only truth. And it it, it goes on. But you know that is something that President Mirzoyev has absolutely staked his entire reform agenda on. And therefore, I think it, it it's very much appropriate for all international actors, everyone engaging with Uzbekistan, including the United States and the European Union, to, to put these recent convictions to to the office to the desk of the president and say what is your response will will you hold a press conference where you clarify where the line is between criticism and and corruption free speech and what is impermissible will you clarify at least will you will will you take responsibility for this area so i think that's that's what's coming i think inevitably the more these convictions accumulate um and the more we see this criminalizing of bloggers, um, inevitably, it's, I think it's pushing Uzbekistan back into a box that that it will need to get out of. Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, and a reminder: we're talking about the situation with media, and particularly bloggers in Uzbekistan. And my guests are Steve Sverdlo, a rights lawyer who has spent many years focusing on Central Asia, and is currently an associate professor of the practice of human rights at the University of Southern California. And Umida Niyazova, director at the Germany-based Uzbek Forum for Human Rights. Uh, Umida, uh, your comments on on what Steve just said? Yes, I remember Otabek Satari staying in the. Uh, room during the trial and uh, kind of addressing his speech to president and saying that I trust your words and you said that uh, president is behind me that's why I reported and uh, about the problems in my community so and uh, he's not the only blogger or activist who actually I think that they sincerely they really believed that the the activity will be protected, but I think that now uh, when we can see that dozens of uh, bloggers they announce that they are closing their uh, channels and they are not going to be involved in this uh, uh, activism. I think that people realized and they see that the the words the just empty words is not enough to protect bloggers or activists, especially if they live in uh, remote areas. And uh, I, you know, the Uzbek journalists and bloggers, they, they have uh, always been aware of restrictions and the practice of censorship on certain topics. Like, it's absolute taboo, for instance, to criticize the president himself or members of his family, and no one does it. But unfortunately, we see that the limits of what is permitted seem to be shrinking. And uh, so we had been telling about these uh, harsh um, sentences. And and this is because the role of these convictions uh, is to intimidate people. So that's why the sentence is so harsh. 
Uh huh. Thanks, um, Steve. And, and I'll ask you the same question, Amita. Uh, but Steve, is there a watershed moment, a point that you can think of where all of a sudden the, the you know Mirziyoyev had been saying that he was all for freedom of media, um, supporting journalists and everything? And, and did, when did that change? Do you think, or why did it change? That's a really good question, and you know I've often tried to chart the trajectory of reforms or human rights improvements or lack of improvements over the past few years. You know the dam breakage and and the corruption around that and the public outcry about the corruption that that led to that. And Omida, I think, did a special reportage on this. In fact, and can speak to it. But you know when I when I look at the pace and the the speed of the changes, let's not even necessarily call them reforms. Um, in, in Uzbekistan, obviously, we've had, and Amina knows this best, um, the dismantling or at least the changing and, and the reduction significantly of forced labor and child labor. We had the releases of political prisoners back in 2016 and into 2017, 2018. And then this, right, the, this area of freedom of expression and this the, the appearance of lots of dynamism in the sphere, a lot of new sites and organizations like Kun Uz, Dario Uz, Kalampur Uz, and the list goes on. But I think to my mind, um, 2018, so that's quite a while ago now, so not quite COVID, but a little before, when we started to see the, the government stepping back, slowing down, not necessarily embracing that um, that pace of change that, that was really exciting, I have to say, uh, exhilarating and 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 you know was so important in 2017 and part of 2018 but as we got into the covid period a lot of the governments in central asia um backslid on their human rights record a lot of them uh, you know sort of uh, fully adopted or took on the instinct to tamp down criticism obviously it was a period of in, of an intense test of 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 the government's ability to deliver goods and services and there was a lot of discontent and we saw a lot of civic initiatives um, from the new civil society, the young civil society of Uzbekistan, sort of being, you know, representing a challenge to the government's narrative around COVID. And I think bloggers also were were part of that. And so I see, you know, anytime you have a major corruption scandal, that's a big, big point for the government to to have a, refl- a reflex like this. Another one, of course, is what we're about to do now, which is interwinter, or, or we're already in winter. I think every winter is a huge test. For the government, there's often a lot of problems related to gas and heating, which has caused people to protest. Again, pretty modest protests. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention probably the biggest development of all of of this last period, which of course is June, July 2022, the Karakal Pakistan protests, the clampdown on the internet, the state of emergency, the excessive force used in every and the aftermath of those events. Although they're somewhat specialized. Or related, you know, specifically to Karakal Pakistan, it was obviously a watershed moment and um, opened up, I think, also a lot of tendencies that 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 we didn't want to see in terms of trials that looked orchestrated, lengthy prison terms for Dawlet Tajimuratov and others, and and I think those trends taken together with what we've seen in the area of freedom of expression combined with the constitutional referendum and this, the president standing for a third unconstitutional term, I think all of that together is showing us that it's time to really take stock. It's time to 
you know, put together an agenda and a discussion about human rights, which is more realistic and in line with, as Umid has been saying, these disturbing trends over the past few years. Okay, thanks. Umida, uh, what do you, what are some of the, what's the moment or the moments that you remember where, where the government started backtracking on all these great statements and promises about opening everything up to the media? Yeah, I think it happened over two and maybe even three years ago when we, like, from the very beginning, uh, there was a time, maybe two years' time, when Mirziev came to the government, when we there was no a single human rights activist or political, not, not religious, but... Uh, the activists who had been sent to prison for being uh, a member of political party like Erk Oberlik. So there was a time like no journalist or activist had been in prison. I'm not talking about religious activists, yeah, religious prisoners. And uh, I think over like three years ago, this the the uh, government started to arrest people for expressing their uh, views. And uh, maybe over a year ago, the uh, censorship in the big media like uh, Gazetos or Kunus uh, is uh, becoming more uh, kind of uh, visible. And especially, I think it happened just a few months during the last months uh, when the journalists uh, uh, announced uh, that they're leaving uh, Gazetos and uh, Kunus. And uh, I, I know I, I spoke with one journalist uh, who worked at Gazetos, and which is considered to be a very liberal publication. But he said that he's leaving because of increasing uh, censorship. And uh, we can uh, also remember the case of uh, Ilios Safarov, the brightest journalist uh, who recently left Kunus. And uh, I saw that it sparked a lot of discussion in social media about the uh, kind of uh, Uzbek mass media state. And he also wrote that the Uzbek uh, journalism is entering a very difficult and uh, complex uh, period. And uh, before I forget, uh, Bruce, uh, may also, uh, I, I would like to share one uh, interesting case uh, with uh, the censorship at Kunus. Yeah, please, go ahead. Yeah, so um, I'd like to share one interesting case which uh, was uh, close to uh, my organization, like Uzbek Forum, and uh, it was regarding the censorship at uh, Kunus. And in March uh, this year, uh, Tashkent, so economist uh, from Tashkent, Yuli Yusupov, he wrote an article in Kunus. So the article was about the coercion and forced labor in Uzbekistan's silk sector. And uh, so he wrote, he wrote about uh, inefficient management of this uh, sector, about the farmers who are forced to grow silkworm cocoons. And he referenced the monitoring data of uh, Uzbek Forum as a source. And then the Silk Association, which uh, unites the Uzbekistan silk production and processing uh, enterprises, uh, they claimed that the article damaged their business reputation and they filed a lawsuit with the court demanding an apology from um, Yusupov. So in August, uh, the court of the first instance, they ruled that Yusupov should uh, apologize for uh, publication uh, at the same media, like uh, where the um, article was published, so in Kunus. 
So Yuli, he appealed this decision, and just recently the courts, uh, uh, the court, uh, so overturned the verdict of the first court. And Yuli has no longer to apologize for writing this. And but uh, I'm saying this that uh, this topic is directly related to Kunus because the original article was published uh, in Kunus. But to my su- uh, surprise, Kunus decided not to cover the trial. So despite the fact that it was directly related to the publication in Kunus, and it's clearly a kind of censorship problem. And uh, you know what this. This kind of censorship like works invisible. I'm sure we don't know of many, many other cases because it's invisible for external uh, kind of actors. So because if an article is stopped by the editor and never published, so we will never know about it. Okay, thank you. Um, well, we're getting close to the end of time, so I'm going to give you both a, a chance to make some last comments. But I'm curious, do you think... Is what's happening now, Does you've both been covering Uzbekistan for a long time, is it starting to remind you of some of the darker days of the Karimov era as far as media, or do you think there's still a chance that uh, we're headed in a at least a different direction than what we've seen before when Karimov was in power? Um, Umida, I'll start with you. So it's not clear how long this uh, status quo will remain or whether, whether the situation with uh, freedom of expression will continue to deteriorate. But we can already count dozens of bloggers and activists, unfortunately, who have said that they're stopping their activism and because it's becoming too dangerous. And what is particularly frustrating uh, is the kind of immense resources Uzbek government is investing in its public image uh, of Uzbekistan as a new, dynamic, free, democratic country. Uh, it's uh, how... This is how we would like to see our country, but it simply um, doesn't reflect the truth. And uh, important that Uzbek government uh, gets the message that they can't you know, have it always, like a liberal economy without civil liberties. Rule of law is one of the most important indicators for investors. And But uh, if it's becoming increasingly difficult to expose corruption because bloggers are being silenced and media censored, who is the guardian of the rule of law? And I think this should be the question for the international investors, for the business and uh, organizations like European Union and others. Okay, thank you. Steve, leave the last word with you. Uh, what do you, how does this compare with the Karim, the situation now compare with the, the Karimov era in your opinion? Hmm. God, it's, it, it, it's, it's such, um, it's difficult to compare because I think, um, especially the youth in Uzbekistan, you know, are really clamoring for change and for more responsiveness on the part of their government and as I was saying, I think, you know, 2016, 2017, 2018 really did help burst open the door for a more dynamic media culture. Although these arrests, um, they really truly, as, as Umida was just painting, illustrating so well, they've left to these really leading figures in the blogging community and the journalistic community to just altogether leave the profession. And I, I think that should worry us because obviously, and it, it may be a cliche, but the way a government treats journalists, critics, bloggers is a bellwether for the 
overall human rights situation. It's they are the canary in the coal mine. Um, I wrote a report um, in 2018 about the media situation in Uzbekistan. It was called "You Can't See Them, But They're Always There," and this was a quote at a, a from a media organization a journalist who was saying that you know even though things had changed, they could still see the 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 influence and feel the pressure of the security services who were still monitoring every publication. And yet I have to say, Bruce, I, I open up the pages of Gazeta Uz sometimes and uh, their reporting is just so, it's so encouraging, so inspiring. We, we did see, you know, media organizations like Hook, a very small ones, you know, reporting on Karakal Pakistan. And the truth is, is that such, it, it, it adds so much value to our understanding that I, I think the diplomatic community, the international community has to understand that without support for journalists at this critical time, we're going to lose so much valuable insight into the really interesting processes underway in Uzbekistan. So yes, you can have all the investment you want, you can have businesses coming, but if you don't have the rule of law and a vibrant media community, um, there's really going to be major, major, major problems. And, and this has ripple effects. Um, another small case to mention at the end here is the document, documentary center run by um, our friend Timur Karpov, 139 Documentary Center, which, by the way, the number 139 um, is connected to the charge in the criminal code for defamation, um, which uh, Timur's mother, the leading uh, journalist and photographer, or photojournalist and artist, Omida Ahmedov, was, was convicted on during the Karimov period. And sort of in honor of that dark period, this art center took the name um, you know, very playfully of this dark aspect of the Karimov period and, and said, you know, we're, we're moving forward. We're using our sense of humor to overcome the darkness, overcome the Karimov legacy. And yet they are now embattled. They've been told they have to vacate their premises and may have to find a new location. And it doesn't appear that that's ready to happen. So we're, we're following that case steadily and we're going to be supporting them as much as we can. But I think it's definitely a time, and this podcast is so timely, to really rally together and call for bloggers in particular to be supported, for there to be engagement on this issue, to view them, uh, view these cases as politically motivated in many cases. And um, so I share Umida's concern, but I do think that um, we're not exactly where we were, obviously, in the Karimov period, but it's worrying, it's troubling, and it's time to work together to improve the situation in Uzbekistan. Remember, uh, Steve, uh, when we like we when we talk about Karimov time, we always remember about the like gravest times. But we had been discussing with Bruce before you joined us. There was a the Karimov time was not always the same. There was a time when remember when Ozot League and uh, I don't know Freedom House and Human Rights Watch they had uh, offices registered in Tashkent and worked work from there. And we still we didn't see this under Mirziyoyev's times. So it was not the like yeah. Oh, that's true. That is different. That's absolutely right. I, yeah, and I think Umida and others have pointed out that you know there was in a way a high point of civil society development between 1999 and 2001 or, you know, up until maybe 2003, perhaps it, it varies. But I think that's absolutely right that we shouldn't wait for things to descend to where they were in the darkest period of, of, of Islam Karimov to act. Okay. 
Um, thank you. We do have to go. So uh, once again, thank you, Amita and Steve. Uh, and a big thank you to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjolis podcast producer in Washington, D.C. And a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjolis podcast or the Central Asia and Focus newsletter by visiting Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's website at rfarl.org. Thanks, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>